You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What you missed this week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It was another week of What'd You Miss from home. We spoke with Jeff Solomon, CEO of the independent investment bank Cowan, to get his read on the financial markets. We began by asking Jeff if he saw the recovery in risk assets at the end of March as a tactical shift or the start of something more. Well, first of all, thanks, Carl. It's good to be here and everybody's safe. I'm I'm actually beginning week five of sheltering in place, so it almost feels normal. I know that sounds strange to say, but, uh, you know, once you start to do it for a while, you kind of get used to it. You get into a rhythm. Um, And I think the markets are the same way. I think, you know, we've probably seen the most – exacerbated moves uh, in equity markets um, that we're going to see in terms of extreme volatility, in part because, you know, the, the virus was largely an unknown unknown. Like, we didn't know about it, and we didn't know what the impact would be uh, on March 1st of this year. And so when you saw the first really meaningful leg down, it felt like there was no bottom because, frankly, people didn't know what the policy responses were going to be. They didn't have an idea what liquidity was going to look like. And uh, and I've said over and over again, I think when in times like that, people just – they look for the most liquid assets to sell so they can have cash in their pocket, and that happened to be equities in the early part of March. Uh, the bounce that we saw at the end of March is really a function of the fact that, you know, stocks had fallen so far so fast that there was some technical rebalancing. And now I feel like, uh, you know, we're just we're following the arc of the virus as the primary indicator. And that's, you know, the, the news we've gotten over the past few days has been, I think surprisingly upbeat, particularly as it relates to hard-hit areas like New York City, and uh, and as a result, the market is saying, okay, maybe maybe this isn't going to be as bad as we thought it was going to be, uh, and and we'll see how that plays out. So, all kinds of different reasons why equities move, but that's sort of my general yeah. sense as to what's happening now. Yeah, Jeff uh, Romain here. So, if you're trying to sort of, I guess, uh, sort of plan out a portfolio. Or just plan out uh, any sort of dip buying, any sort of valuation plays here. How do you actually model that in this type of environment where uh, even if you have a company that maybe looks good on the surface, when you don't really have that certainty or that clarity as to uh, what the economic fallout or the, or the long, longevity of this economic fallout is going to be, how do you model that? Well, so I think people start with an, uh, with an, uh, uh, are starting now actually to have the time 
to react to where long-term fundamental value is going to be. I mean, in, in the early days of any crisis where there's uh, significant panic selling, it's hard to actually take the time during the course of the day to do the fundamental work because you just there's so many unknowns. But now we can kind of get an idea as to what we think how deep the economic recession is likely to be. Uh, people can start to model that out as a worst-case scenario, a medium-case scenario, or not quite as bad. So I refer to those as sort of the uh, the 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 L recovery, the U recovery, or the V recovery. There there will be a recovery in here, and the question is how far will that recovery be from where people had modeled out, um, you know, steady state at the end of 2019. And once you start to do that, you can begin to discount the immediate impact of the virus and begin to look beyond uh, into 2021 and 2022 of what, that, what those businesses will begin to look like from a cash flow standpoint. And once you start to do that, you can begin to try and ascertain where floor values are going to be in some of the more obvious areas. And obviously we're, we're seeing that in in places like healthcare and technology and uh, stay at home, anything that benefits from staying at home more, uh, those are starting, you know, are, are going to be the areas that I think obviously have rallied first and will continue to show resilience in this. So, Jeff, when the market bottomed, or at least temporarily um, back in late March, uh, March, March 23rd, I believe, uh, there was this desperate need for cash among companies. They were just trying to access cash any way they could. We know that parts of the Fed's different programs that they've launched will take a while to get going, like the commercial paper program, for instance. But it, has it calmed nerves to the point where your corporate clients can access the cash they, that they need in a timely manner on manageable terms? Do you still see this desperate rush for cash the way we did um, at the uh, end of March, two, three weeks ago? So I, I think it's two, two different things there. One is uh, immediate cash to meet uh, much more immediate challenges like making payroll versus long-term am I financed correctly to withstand a prolonged economic turndown or in my top line uh, might be uh, significantly lower than what I originally budgeted. And so as it relates to the first one, a lot of companies drew on their revolvers. A lot of our clients, certainly our private equity clients, uh, portfolio companies, they know the first thing you do in a time of uncertainty is you hit your revolver and you try to get as much cash uh, in, your, uh, in your own hands as you possibly can. Uh, and certainly in the early days, the first uh, week of March, maybe the second week of March, uh, there was a lot of uh, drain of liquidity in, in, in markets. And the Fed acted uh, very, very quickly to pulling out a lot of the stops that, uh, or a lot of the programs that, that we saw post the global financial crisis to get that, to, to get liquidity back into functioning markets, which I think was a huge relief. Uh, you know, people didn't have to worry about whether or not they were going to have cash tomorrow. Um, and, and that was, I think, a huge relief across the entire platform. That's part of what drove, I think, the rallies towards the back half of the month is that people felt like they could see the, that there wasn't going to be an immediate cra cash crunch. Now, as, they, as we pr progress beyond this, people are taking a look at and modeling out how they're going to be able to access these programs. Uh, particularly the smaller businesses. Uh, the last week was really about um, uh, focusing in on uh, on the mechanism of transmission. So, uh, if you are going, if you if you have a banking relationship, are you going to be able to go to your bank uh, uh, and uh, if you are an existing borrower and get funds from some of these programs? And I think what you're seeing is that demand for those programs probably outstrips. 
the original allocation for things like PPP and the SBA and, and, and the small business loans. And that's why you're hearing today, um, you know, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and maybe uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell coming back and saying, okay, we're going to add to that program or, or add an, uh, additional funds into that program because my sense is that the demand for that uh, was greater than what they originally allocated. Uh, and I view that largely as positive yeah. because this is all geared towards bridging uh, individuals and companies, particularly small companies that make up about 50% of the employment in this country. Uh, it's about bridging them until we can yeah. start to turn the economy back on again and consumers feel like it's safe to go back and, uh, and begin, to begin, begin to start having more regular consumer behavior um, you know, post the, when the lockdowns are really lifted. Yeah, uh, good point, Jeff. Uh, given your background in deal making, Jeff, I'm curious, uh, what, what's your outlook in general for M&A activity uh, going forward once we get through uh, this period that we're in? So I think it's really a tale of two cities. Uh, if you were already pretty much uh, locked and loaded on getting deals done, I think they probably get done, particularly uh, you know, in some of the larger mergers, uh, if they're just waiting for regulatory approval and they get done, I think they probably end up happening. Certainly the ones that, that we think were just between signing and closing and not really uh, financing dependent uh, are, are in really good shape. I think the challenge for the M&A pipeline is really what happens if you are about to launch a process. And I would say in that particular case, people are going to take a wait and see because you know, the buyers are still, uh, the potential buyers for these, both strategic and, uh, and financial buyers, are looking at their existing portfolios to, to assess the damage. And if they've got excess capital yeah. uh, or capital on call, in the case of private equity, they're going to be uh, maybe required to uh, put more equity into their existing portfolios. So even if you were to launch a process today, the likelihood is that you're, just, you're launching it into a marketplace that isn't ready to accept uh, new ideas. So that probably clears yeah. up over the course of the next uh, quarter and, and or so. And so uh, I think uh, from our standpoint, we look at the sellers. Are the sellers still willing to be sellers? Have they readjusted their sites on valuation? Probably. Uh, and then it just becomes mm -hmm. a matter of, uh, of getting the buy side to reengage as they see opportunities. And what I will say is there is a lot of money being raised, particularly for uh, distressed uh, credits uh, and distressed lending yeah. opportunities. I, I think uh, those uh, very large players, uh, particularly in, in right. the credit space, have access to pools of capital. And what I've heard uh, more recently over the last two weeks is that um, is that they've yep. been successful at tapping into uh, some of the global asset allocators to really take advantage of this dislocation. A lot of folks have been keeping cash around waiting for something like this. Uh, and so I, I, sure. I think you'll see that start to to, to play out over the course of the next few quarters. The coronavirus does not care who you are, and even heads of state are not immune. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson believed to be the first world leader to test positive for COVID-19. Johnson was admitted to the hospital and spent three nights in the intensive care unit. Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb took over certain duties where necessary. We spoke with Tina Fordham, partner and head of global political strategy at Avonhurst, a political and legal advisory boutique in London. We asked Tina what this meant for the practical running of the country. Uh, well, thank you, Scarlett. It, it, it's a good question because um, bearing in mind that the UK doesn't have uh, either a written constitution or the same kind of formal succession that the United States does, so there's no sort of vice president takes over as, as in the U.S. case. Um, Dominic Robb, foreign secretary, um, 
will assume many of the responsibilities, but part of what the uncertainty is about and, and why I think uh, some of the gains from today may be wiped out is just the communication strategy coming from, from number 10 on this, because we were being told last night when we also had the extraordinary additional speech from, uh, from the Queen um, that the Prime Minister uh, was being admitted to, uh, to hospital uh, as a precaution, and now we hear that he is, in fact, in intensive care, uh, and there's uh, been suggestions denied by Number 10 that he might end up being on a ventilator. Uh, he's 55 years old, a very good delegator, I should say, um, so I'm not sure that day-to-day policymaking is um, so much at risk as a result, but um, I think it's quite a chilling effect, uh, particularly coming after the market performance today. This virus is not going to um, kind of peter, peter out in some sort of, uh, you know, um, predictable fashion. So, Tina, though, when we look at, uh, I guess, the way that the governments are responding to the various virus, obviously uh, what we saw yesterday out of the Queen uh, there in the U.K., certainly uh, an amazing moment and quite an unusual moment. But we've seen a lot of leaders now uh, stepping up in a public that has really been hungry to see that that leadership at the federal level uh, here in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries. How do you rate what we're getting out of those leaders so far, not just in terms of addressing the logistics of this crisis, but really in in terms of reassuring the public about how this is being managed? Uh, It's a a remarkable effect because, you know, perhaps contrary to to what we might expect in a situation where, you know, people are are dying and uh, the public um, is being tested, the social systems are being tested, um, the remarkable thing is that approval ratings are actually skyrocketing for, for just about every leader presiding over a country um, that's a virus hotspot. So that includes Italy, uh, where the government under um, Prime Minister Conte has uh, seen very strong ratings, despite Italy being the hardest hit. Boris Johnson, higher ratings than uh, he had when he won a, a landslide, in fact, uh, in the elections. And President Trump has seen the, the best approval ratings of his presidency in what, you know, we, we should really consider a, a rally around the flag effect. Um, the problem is it's unlikely to last. For President Trump, Tina, can it last at least until the election? Because right now his opponent, presumably Joe Biden, is not getting a lot of airtime. He can't get a lot of airtime. Uh, he can't go out there campaigning. He's, uh, he's not addressing the day-to-day logistics of running the country the way the president is. Well, um, it's an important point because we, we also, uh, you know, it looks like we're going to see the conventions postponed. Uh, campaigning is obviously, uh, you know, ground to a halt, hence the president um, making use of his uh, primetime exposure uh, to rally the base, as, as many have suggested. Um, I am not sure, though, that the, the, the spike in approval ratings will be able to withstand uh, what we've heard from the U.S. Surgeon General and, and many others about the, the expected projection of, of deaths. And what really matters here in terms of um, the electoral outcome, whether it's the United States or anywhere else, is that ability to maintain public confidence and public trust. 
Uh, and that is a factor that we saw yeah. um, very much diminished in the run-up to, to 2016 uh, elections that saw President Trump elected and, of course, the U.K. referendum result, the plummeting of public trust. Um, can we presume that things like Brexit will still continue uh, and that the government can meet its uh, conditions for, for exiting? Well, I think no government um, is going to be in a position to pursue any other policy objective apart from battling this virus with all of the political capital and any other type of capital that they've got. And that is why um, I've been saying for a couple of weeks now that I suspect that Brexit will be postponed. Um, that would have to come at the June uh, at Brussels summit. Um, it would have to be requested. Of course, that would be the last thing that number 10 will want to be talking about right now. But both parties, right, the European Union and the, the member states and the United Kingdom um, are really fighting for uh, survival. And um, I suspect that uh, a delay to, to Brexit will probably suit both sides. And then on the, on the other side of it, just thinking about the people for whom Brexit has been the, um, you know, the primary objective, in actual fact, this virus has done more to reverse globalization, uh, return sovereignty and borders than Brexiteers could ever have dreamed of. So, Tina, I, I want to go back to something that you were saying. You kind of mentioned some of the populist movements or what passes for populism leading up to not only the 2016 election here in the U.S., but really uh, around the world. I'm wondering, do we start to see a change in voters uh, in terms of what they want out of their government? Because a lot of what we're seeing now is a direct outgrowth uh, of the choices that voters made and made pretty definitively. Is there some sense that you're seeing here uh, that there would be a shift in voters' attitudes uh, once we get through this crisis? <laughs> well, I, I think that's a really important point because, I mean, what, what you're asking about is will the demand side of the equation change in terms of who's electable? Uh, because, you know, very clearly in both the U.K. and the U.S., and, and the U.K. was famously said this country has had enough of experts, um, the anti-science uh, bias and, and others that we see in the U.S., you know, broadly similar, different manifestations. And there's nothing we need more in a, in a crisis like this, a public health crisis, than experts. And that has been seen quite clearly. So the question becomes whether, uh, you know, a, a, a severe economic and financial crisis colliding with a public health crisis leads to some kind of um, return to more moderate political parties, um, or whether uh, a new wave of populists can sort of harness the, uh, the fear, the bewilderment, uh, or something else. Um, my sense now, and I, I hope it's not wishful thinking, is, is if we think back to the 20th century leadership profile, uh, leaders with wartime experience um, were, were very much sought after. And I wonder if in the 21st century, and, and I think this pandemic is going to be the defining uh, feature of, of this century, we're going to be relying upon leaders who have experience managing crises, who understand data, who can manage complex systems. Um, I suspect that yeah. people with that type of management experience are going to be much more desirable. They'll be the generals for the 21st century. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This week, Allstate made headlines when the insurer announced it would return some money to customers as widespread shutdowns across the U.S. cut down on driving. The company said it expected to give back more than $600 million, with personal auto customers receiving 15% of their monthly premium in April and May. We spoke about this decision with Allstate CEO Tom Wilson. Well, Scarlett, that's a good place to start, which is we've been in the catastrophe business for 89 years. You know, mostly it's hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, which are geographically more concentrated and shorter in duration. So we've never seen anything like this. Um, but what we have seen is we know what works in those cases, which is act quickly and put people first. So we, after about a week, so, it, you know, frequency, the number of people driving, we, we see how many people drive every day, how far they drive, how fast they drive, about 23 million cars. And so we could see in the beginning of March, it was fine. About March 15th, it started going down. By the time you got that 25th, it was 35 to 50% lower. So after a week's worth of data, we're like, this is different. We need to do something differently. And we decided we should reach out to our customers and not wait for them to ask, but to be in the spirit of fairness, go back to them and say, hey, you're not driving. You should get money back. So we created this shelter-in-place payback, which is 15% or about $600 million over two months. And so what's the general criteria here, Tom, for people uh, getting this? Is this pretty much just a blanket uh, for all of your customers, or is there uh, certain uh, thresholds that people need to meet to get that? Uh, no threshold needed. If you're an auto insurance customer for us uh, in any of either Allstate, eSurance, or Encompass, uh, you get 15% back. We did it by state, I mean, because um, there's really not that much difference in how much people are driving every state. And by doing it that it could be simpler, we put a minimum dollar amount on it. We have it set up in our app so you can get it into your credit card. You can put it into your checking account. Or if you want, you can just take it as a credit as you come. But we wanted to make sure people could have the money as quickly as possible. So we did it on relatively little data, which, as you know, for insurance companies, is a little new. Uh, so we're all, we're all finding new barriers we have to break down. Uh, and we assumed this was going to keep going for a while. But we just thought it was the right thing to do. Got it. So speed was definitely of the essence here. Now, our Bloomberg intelligence analysts uh, say that this shelter-in-place uh, payback program will reduce your first quarter EPS by about 16 percent and affect the second quarter. But that may be offset by fairly low first quarter catastrophe costs and a drop in auto traffic nationwide. Does that sound about right to you? Uh, so we put out, yes, that's, that's you know, the... We haven't seen uh, a tremendous number of catastrophes. You can look at just the Weather Channel and see that. Obviously, frequency is down, which is why we're doing this. Uh, and so we feel good about doing this because we're in a strong place. But we also felt like it was worth taking the risk going forward. 
um, because our customers are dealing with this, and we don't think we're going to automatically start driving, uh, you know, back the way we were at the beginning of March or in February and next week. It's going to take a while to get back. The other thing we did was decide to protect people for their identity. So we did we giving free identity protection as well. I saw that. And that's not limited to all state policyholders either, is it? No, it's not, uh, Scarlett. You know, we, we looked and we said, okay, what can we do for our customers? Of course, first thing we said for our customers, we can get money back. Then we said, you know, everybody's digital today. So if you're three or th- third grader, you're going to school online or you're working from home, you're online. And the number of uh, phishing attacks related to coronavirus is up like six or seven hundred percent. And we say, you know, people aren't that used to protecting themselves. So uh, it, we can make it available to everybody, and it's free. So it's in free is free. This is not one of those deals where you sign up and if you forget to call us, uh, then we keep billing your credit card. Uh, this is for the rest mm-hmm. of the year. You don't have to be an all-state customer. You go to our, our website or our app, uh, and you can get free identity protection, which we believe people need. And it's, I guess it's just this, we feel this spirit that we got to come together, and everybody's got to lean in and do something different, because this is not like normal catastrophes. Right, right. I really appreciate the data that you're able to offer there on the phishing and the um the, the cyber threats that uh, we, we might face, as, particularly when it comes to our personal identity online. Having said all of that, a lot of us are flying blind here uh, because this is not something we've experienced before. And you alluded to that as much, uh, even when you put in the shelter-in-place payback program. What kind of visibility do you have, do you don't have, into the second half of this year? I know the first quarter got really disrupted. The second quarter, everything's just kind of up in the air. But what about the second half of the year? What are you thinking about? How are you thinking about it? Well, uh, first, we're thinking the world's going to be different uh, than it is today, and nobody really knows how. Um, and so the first thing we said is, well, you know the way you get through that is working together and having trust. So that's one of the reasons we did this is we want people to trust us and be fair as we go through it. As you look at specifically, I, people will get back to driving. We About a third of our time is spent driving to work, a third to do errands, and a third to see friends and family. And at least two of those have been hit pretty hard. Um, but I believe once we get through shelter-in-place, people will start going back. How much, though, is unclear, right? Like if you're working at home five days a week right now and suddenly say, you know, I could do it pretty well two days. Yeah, you know, I could work at home two days a week. So suddenly driving is down by two-fifths. So we don't know that. And we don't really know about the uh, the type of accidents because while we because we do monitor 23 million cars, a couple of million of which are our customers, but we do a much broader set around the country. We can see that while driving is down, people are going a little faster. And it could be because, you know, no one's on the road and they're speeding. So we don't really know how severe the accidents will be. We also don't know what will happen to the homeowner's business um, because clearly if you're at home, nobody's coming in your house and stealing stuff. On the other hand, because so many families have come together, uh, people have moved out of places and there's empty houses. And we don't know what's happening to those yet. So... What we do know is it's going to be different, uh, and if we act quickly and we make sure we take our fear to our customers, we'll be fine. Then we ended the week with a wide-ranging conversation with the noted short seller, Jim Chanos, president and founder of Kinecos Associates. We discussed everything from his Tesla short to why he thinks the gig economy will be permanently changed by the coronavirus outbreak. We began by asking Jim what he thought a shakeout in the private markets might look like. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting, uh, Scarlett and, and Joe, and thank you for having me on. Um, it's never a dull moment these days. Um, what's going on? In, 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 we can we can uh, discern the private markets in a few different uh, buckets. I mean, you've got uh, private funds, you've got private equity, uh, and then of course things like venture capital and elsewhere. And and the thing that that is, is most intriguing to me is um, is sort of the the. Uh, the trials and tribulations of private equity and, and, and how private equity is sort of trying to present themselves to Washington and elsewhere as, as in need of assistance. Um, I took a look at the, the four largest publicly traded U.S. private equity companies, and um, at their year-end letters, they boasted, this would be Apollo, Blackstone, Carlyle, and uh, KKR, they boasted of having over $300 billion in dry powder. Um, to put to use in, in, in when, when there were values or, or, or distress situations. So I'm, I'm a little bemused, puzzled, and, and somewhat outraged, I guess, that, um, that private equity would be pushing to the front of the line here to try to get uh, taxpayer assistance. That's one, that's one observation. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, when, as we say, when, when the fear turns to anger post all this, um, we're going to be looking at, at how fast some of these programs were put together. I noted today that, uh, for example, uh, the state of Nevada um, uh, pointed out that uh, professional gamblers would be uh, eligible for un- expanded unemployment under the CARES Act. Um, now, so I guess we're at the point where the U.S. taxpayer is literally bailing out gamblers. Um, and, and so the, those, those sort of things, I think the public is going to come back to, and we're going to see some of the externalities of these programs, um, you know, have, have political and other costs to them. Uh, we get back to the gamblers in a minute because, you know, I think they totally deserve, poker players deserve a bailout too. But on the private market, for a moment further. I mean, we've seen a lot of big institutions and pension funds feel they have to up their allocation to private equity. There's yeah. also this idea that maybe private markets, um, you know, mass volatility and appear to give the uh, appear smoothness. Do you think in the coming quarters that that will be revisited, that after a spike like this, that pension funds and committees will perhaps reevaluate how uh, how safe or uncorrelated these returns are yeah so i you know i i i'm not only an investor and run a hedge fund i also allocate capital on, on a couple of investment boards so i hear the pitches all the time and it, it what's so remarkable to me and I, and I think private equity is is possibly at a crossroads similar to where hedge funds were post the global financial crisis and that is people are going to start judging the high fees and the illiquidity and say, am I really getting the return commensurate for the risk? And prior to the virus, I, I think the answer was a, a, a qualified, mm, perhaps not, and, and, and that uh, an awful lot of private equity hadn't returned a whole lot better than um, public market returns. Uh, and then when you adjust for the risk and the leverage and the illiquidity, um, you know, they, they, they might be found wanting. Uh, I think that going forward, we're going to have to see I mean, again, what everybody loves about private equity is the smooth returns. But life isn't that simple. Right. And, and I'm not just so sure that those smooth returns aren't more a function of short, sharp market declines. And we might have just seen another one, by the way, uh, where, where the market snapped back immediately 
So the real pain of having to take a multi-year markdown um, doesn't occur in anybody's uh, 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 portfolio. So, Jim, I wanted to bring in a question that our a Bloomberg Terminal user has just posted to you. Where in the market do you think there's uh, you see investors most mispricing, mispricing risk, both to the upside and to the downside? So what we've been telling our clients and the way we've been trying to position this, and it's, it's been tricky, is to, to look at, at situations where the, the companies had, had questionable business model in 2019, and, and arguably in 2021, with the idea that 2020 is a write-off, right? That, that everyone's going to just disregard right. whatever happened this year and say, well, no one could have foreseen this. And it, it, it was certainly um, the black swan of black swans, the five standard deviation event, whatever you want to call it. But, but there are lots and lots of companies that, that are, are, are almost troubled today that are still trading at, at valuations that would have been seen excessive, looked at, backwards in 2019 or, or even in 2021. And, and forget short selling, just investors should be looking at their portfolios and trying to weed out those kinds of situations because you're getting a chance to sell those companies back at, at pretty premium valuations. And, and I think that uh, you, didn't, you might not have thought that three or four weeks ago, but, but here you are with a lot of companies that were losing money in 2019 and are going to be losing money in 2021 back to, you know, if not their February highs, certainly within a stone's throw of it. Well, let's talk about some of these companies that you've been talking about for a long time. I know you're uh, famously short Tesla. That stock had an incredible run-up. It's still up massively for the year, even with the diminishment of risk appetite. At what point with this company, in your view, does the story component get busted? Because that seems to be keeping it alive, that the secular story is just so great. When does that end if even a crash like this can't uh, let the air out of a company like that? <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Um, look, it, it, you know my view on this one. I mean, it, it is a story stock that's being held up by people who want to believe that, that it's on the cutting edge of, of whether it's autonomy or 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 EV vehicles growth, or whatever it might be. But again, I keep coming back to this tired old bromide that this is a car company. It looks exactly like a car company. It's been trading more recently in line with the car companies in terms of its moves up and down. It has to lay people off like a car company, not like a Silicon Valley software company. Um, it has manufacturing plants like a car company. It's got a lot of debt like a car company. I mean, so so <laughs> investors can try to investors can 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 it, convince themselves all they want that this is a software company or this is some leading edge technology company. Sadly, the numbers belie that. The numbers show this is a car company. They will lose money again this year. Um, so that'll be sixteen or seventeen years in a row. Um, this is not a startup anymore. Right. And so at, at some point, investors will simply have to say, okay, yeah, other guys have EVs too, and they're all in the space. And EV growth was negative last year, 2019 versus 2018 in the U.S. Units were actually down, which is sort of interesting. Um, but it's a car company. And, and so far, that has not but been the correct call, I will admit. Okay. <laughs> 
I hear what you're saying, Jim, but at the same time, Tesla does seem to get special treatment. China, for instance, giving it special dispensation to keep its Shanghai factory open and operating through coronavirus. Does it hurt your thesis if China continues to backstop Tesla? Oh, that's even better. I, in case you've forgotten, I'm not really positive on anybody having anything to do with China. So um, <laughs> I, think that, I, I think that I think China exposure ultimately turns out to be a negative for this company. Um, I think one of the things I think that, that uh, has been lost in the coronavirus um, news flow has been a really severe deterioration in U.S.-Chinese relations in the last sort of four or five weeks. Um, China threw Western uh, journalists out, as you guys know. And, and, and we've had the advent of another wave of frauds in U.S.-listed Chinese companies. Um, I'm not so sure that, that, uh, that Elon embracing Shanghai and the Chinese Communist Party is going to try to be a positive. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I do think one of the big questions that people will have is, even after the world returns to something resembling normal, by which I mean people, it's safe for people to go back to offices and to travel and so forth, right. everyone is asking, well, what is going to change? There's going to inevitably be something different. What do you see as the most concrete uh, ways, say, business and U.S.-China relations will change, whether it's on the sort of pure business front or the capital markets front? Well, the biggest change will be how will businesses look at the supply chain issue. That's the 600-pound that's uh, gorilla, I think, in, in that um, will companies uh, that are dependent upon China um, for essential parts uh, that for their businesses um, move production out of China or at least second source out of China um, what does the political situation look like, whether it's President Trump or President Biden, um, and, and how, how, do, how does China fit in that? Uh, I, I think things are hardening rather than softening right now. I mean, some of these headlines out of China would have just, uh, a year ago when we were in the midst of the trade spat, would have been just sort of unbelievable. But because of the virus, we've, we've sort of put them in the, on the back pages. And I think that... that um, I think that that's going to come back to the fore as businesses and people in the financial markets try to figure out, okay, how much exposure should I have to the Chinese economy? Um, is the Chinese economy going to go it alone in that respect if, if their export machine mm-hmm. gets, gets turned down a few more notches? And then what about this debt buildup? It still happens every year. Um, the Chinese economic model hasn't changed. And I know people are sort of sick of hearing about it, but be that as it may, it keeps growing Debt keeps growing twice the size of the economy in terms of growth every year. And I think that's, um, that's something that we shouldn't uh, forget. So, Jim, when you look at what's going on in China, and we've had examples in recent weeks of luck and coffee, um, Tal education, and some accounting issues there, um, Chinese state-backed media is now jumping on that and calling for Chinese companies to perhaps seek alternative listings, not necessarily in the United States anymore. Do you really think that this will come to pass, or is this um, China trying to call everyone's bluff here? Yeah, I, I, I would go with the latter, Scarlett. I, I think that listing, you know, listing questionable companies in, uh, in the Western financial markets is a feature, not a bug, for the Chinese financial system. They want that capital. They want that access to capital. They want those dollars. Um, you know, it, it's problematic from the get-go uh, because of the whole... Um, and I don't want to get too much into to, to a wonky policy discussion here, but 
the way that Chinese companies are structured the, when they trade it in, in New York or elsewhere uh, outside of China is, is through the variable interest entity structure, whereby you don't really have a claim on the assets in China. You have a piece of paper sitting in a safe in the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, um, which gives you the right to the operating profits or the economic profits of the entity um, as they see fit. And so this is the problem uh, when, when something goes really sour, like a luck-in or what else. Um, you, Western investors don't really have recourse to the assets or via the court system uh, in China. And, and that's a huge, huge problem. And, and China, I think, is very happy to have that structure and to set up access for Western capital um, to go into China uh, through this VIE structure. And it's really a problem. And then on top of that, you have the issues that, that people like Senator Rubio and others have raised on the accounting uh, and China not adhering to our accounting standards. So I think you're going to hear, once the virus subsides, I think you're going to hear about these issues a lot more um, going into 2021. Uh, Jim, I want to go back domestically and talk about individual companies and sectors that may be affected or that uh, people still haven't appreciated perhaps the ramifications of what we're going through. Lots of concerns about live events and the future of live events, anything, Live Nation having been a stock that's just gotten absolutely clobbered. It didn't even really bounce that much week along with anything else, the big concert promoting company. What do you think of the market's assessment of these types of businesses here? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the, the the market. I mean, we are we are short live entertainment, Joe, um, and have been now for a while, and and it fits into my mm-hmm. bucket of a company that that didn't make any money in 2017, 2018, or 2019 is not forecasted to make any t- money in 2021 when the concerts come back, um, and, and and is trading at. at 15 or 16 times so-called EBITDA here, uh, excuse me, based on last year's number, and, and this one fits into the bucket of, I don't get it. Um, now, we can argue when live entertainment may or may not come back, and I'm, I'm sure on some guys it'll come back, but will, it, will there be extra costs for health, uh, for, for, for uh, guest screening, um, you know, for sporting events and for, for concerts? Um, will there be restrictions on the number of people in venues? I, mean, I don't know. I have no idea. But what I do know is that the company didn't make any money when things were great. Um, and so it, it fits into that model. If, if the business model didn't make a lot of economic sense prior to COVID-19, um, and now we have a new world of pandemics, um, I don't know that it should still be trading at premium valuations um, even today. Mm. And that's, that's why I think there's an asymmetric risk-reward in things like live entertainment and a number of restaurant stocks. And um, I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know whether business has permanently changed, but I do know that a lot of these stocks have gone back to where they were back at year end. And right. that, to me, kind of is puzzling. So you mentioned restaurant stocks. I know you don't like the business model there, particularly for the likes of Dunkin' or restaurant brands because they're asset light and, of course, they're heavily leveraged as well. Um, What's going to be the deciding factor between which companies survive and which don't in this kind of environment where people aren't spending, they're not going out, and we don't know how long it's going to last for? Yeah, so so you've hit upon the the problem. The so-called asset light model, which would, where investors bid up the, the prices of companies that were franchisors 
and the debt was hidden, that the debt was at the um, operator level, at the franchisee level. And, you know, we've seen uh, a, a series of troubled franchisees, uh, again, pre-virus. Um, all you have to take mm-hmm. a look at it, look at Carol's Restaurant's uh, symbol, Taste, T-A-S-T. They're the largest Burger King franchisee in North America of restaurant brands. They trade publicly. So you can actually see just how much their business deteriorated before COVID-19 and, and just how tough the, the, the quick service restaurant business has become as, as these asset light companies have grown units so aggressively in the United States in the last five years. And so when you look at the underlying restaurants, you see just how troubled they are. And then you look at the franchisors, and, and many of them are still trading at, at premium valuations even today. And you sort of say, okay, well, there's a disconnect that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if these companies were troubled prior to the virus, um, again, getting back to my theme, and, and even if we go back to business as normal, um, the poor franchisees are going to be every bit as troubled with just a lot more debt on top of them. And so um, I, I'm puzzled. I don't have to be an epidemiologist to sort of figure out that, that maybe these businesses shouldn't trade at, at big premium valuations to the market. Jim, real quickly, because we just have like a minute to go. Uh, yeah. You've been notably skeptical about companies like Uber and Grubhub and some of these new economy oh, yeah. businesses. The stocks are really slammed a lot. It's not like these are widely loved stocks. Why do you think investors still don't appreciate the downside risk here? Well, first of all, none of them make any money. <laughs> so so uh, I, I think that the business model didn't make sense beforehand. Um, the food delivery guys are actually, you know, they've, they've held up uh, the grub hubs of the world because people believe that everybody's ordering in. But, in fact, the, uh, we're going to know sooner or later, but it looks like actually volumes are down for a lot of these delivery companies, food delivery companies. So, again, if, they're not make, if you don't make money in the first half of 2021, excuse me, 2020, delivering food, you're never going to make money. And, and I've, I've, been, I've hmm. long publicly been saying that the business doesn't scale that delivery drivers can only really deliver two, two meals a, an hour, and it's a body shop. But the bigger problem that the gig economy companies have is the nature of their employees, the, the fact that they're uh, independent contractors. And I think post-virus that is something that is going to change. I think we're going to treat these employees a lot better, and we should treat them a lot better. And the business model is much, much tougher in an environment where those people are, tra- are, are actual employees and enter at least minimum wage. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.